Hey guys, and welcome to episode 44 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today, you're joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack. And before we get stuck straight into the Q&A, I just wanted to say that if you enjoy the episode, please feel free to share it on your Instagram stories and tag myself, tag Tierra, and tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. Also, if you're ever interested in what coaching services we offer, please head to our website, which you can find in all of our bios, and also by searching www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. And yeah, feel free to DM us with any other questions. So I think we'll get straight into the Q&A. So we'll start off with a question by Remy, which asks, nutritional differences between fresh versus frozen fruit and veg. Now, this is an awesome question, and I feel like it comes up a lot because, you know, there are certainly people who say fresh is best, right, when it comes to fruits and vegetables, but you guys might be surprised that that's not necessarily always the case, and sometimes frozen vegetables actually might be superior to fresh vegetables. Now, the reason for this is that frozen vegetables, they're usually picked at peak harvest time, right? When nutrients are the highest in those fruits and vegetables. And then what they're done is they're washed. Sometimes they're very partially cooked, which is called blanching. And then they're immediately snap frozen. Now, this is awesome because freezing the fruits and vegetables, it helps to preserve them. Now, this is different compared to fresh vegetables because when we think about fresh vegetables, right, after they're picked from the farm and they're harvested, they are exposed to a lot of oxidation because they have to, let's say that you, uh, let's say that you picked a head of broccoli, right, from a farm and you had to put it into a truck, you had to transport it to Woolworths, right? Someone unstocks it at Woolworths, they put it onto the shelves, and then it might even sit there for a few days because maybe no one wants to buy that specific head of broccoli, right? So it sits there for a few days, then finally it finds a lucky customer, comes and picks this head of broccoli, takes it home, puts it in their fridge, it sits there for a few more days until they finally eat it. And they probably don't eat it all at once, they probably take bits off by bit and keep it in the fridge. So the thing, what what I'm trying to emphasize is that those fresh fruits and vegetables, they're sitting out for a long time and they're exposed to a lot of oxygen. And being exposed to oxygen can cause oxidation, which pretty much degrades some of the nutrient value in those fruits and vegetables, specifically vitamin C, which is very highly prone to oxidation, and also some of the B vitamins as well. So if you are eating fruits and vegetables that have been sitting out for a long time, they might actually have less nutrients in them compared to frozen vegetables. I completely agree with what Tierra's mentioned, and I think we also have to look at other aspects of fresh and frozen. For example, all aspects of processing. And processing, when people usually speak about processing, they think about like packaged goods and in a aluminium, aluminium wrapper or something like that. But processing's every part from essentially the farm to your plate. So chopping the vegetables, uh, the process of freezing them and all that sort of stuff. So for example, the more that a vegetable is chopped 
to your plate, the more nutrient loss it will have as well. So you see those salad mixes at Woolies and those are very finely chopped. They undergo a lot of processing compared to something like a carrot, a full carrot that's in a bag of carrots. Um, so that's something we have to consider as well. And usually your frozen veg is chopped, which will cause some nutrient loss, but it will be nowhere near as something like uh, like as Tierra said, a head of broccoli, which takes sometimes it might be even like one to two weeks before you even eat it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make is that every single food, guys, goes through a process. So technically every single food is processed, right? But I guess there's just a difference between a food being processed and a food being highly processed, right? So I guess a food that would go through low processing would be maybe like a potato, right? Because a potato still goes through a process where it's harvested from the farm, it's sent via truck to the store, it's washed, and then it, you know, you buy it, take it home, and you cook it in some way, right? That potato's still gone through a process. Compared to a potato going being highly processed, where it turns into something like a potato chip, right? So there's a difference there. But just remember that every single food out there is processed. But I think a final point to touch on that's really important is the cost of frozen versus fresh fruits and vegetables. And usually frozen vegetables are much, much cheaper. And for a lot of people, this can be a significant advantage because it encourages you to eat more vegetables and sometimes eat more fruits as well. Yeah, definitely. And it may even depend on the season. For example, blueberries in season might be a lot cheaper fresh compared to blueberries off season where they might be cheaper for a frozen alternative. And yeah, the last thing I wanted to say is the actual dollar cost per nutrient value. For example, the frozen veg might even be more cheaper compared to the amount of nutritional value compared to the fresh. Yeah, definitely. And we have to think about the food waste as well. If you can chuck something in the freezer, you're a lot less likely to actually waste food because, again, if that food's sitting in your fridge, it's oxidizing, it's turning brown, you're probably more likely to throw it out. So you could save money in that sense too and also save the environment as well. But yeah, I guess the main point is that we want to make, guys, is that frozen or fresh, just try to eat your vegetables, you know, and don't try to necessarily put either on a hierarchy. Just try to think about, you know, trying to get a wide variety of fruits and vegetables into your diet and trying to save money where you can. All right, so we're going to move on to a next question. This one's pretty interesting. So this one says, increased urination during extended dieting when sodium and potassium are normal. This is really interesting, and I think we have a lot to say on this. (laughs) Yeah, this is a good one, and I'm sure everyone who's done a prolonged diet, even me, I've two weeks into a mini cut and I'm already pissing way more often, so. Yeah, dieting, like people who go on diets are just notorious for always being like, uh, I gotta go to the bathroom. (laughs) And essentially, for me personally, I can think of two major factors involved in it. I know Tierra wants to speak in depth about one, so um, I'll speak about the second one first, which is essentially, this is probably less important, but when you are dieting, you're probably eating a lot more high volume foods, such as like fruits, vegetables, you're you're eating oats with lots of water, 
And essentially all of these high volume foods will have a lot more water compared to what you may be eating in a surplus. So essentially if you're drinking more water and eating more water, you'll be urinating more as well. But I'll let Tierra touch on the, probably the bigger factor. So I guess there's a few things to consider when we are dieting. And I guess one of the major ones would be that you're in a caloric deficit, hence you're eating less calories, and you're probably eating quite a fair few less carbohydrates than you're normally used to when you are either at maintenance calories or in a surplus. And as we know, each gram of carbohydrate, also stored as each gram of glycogen, will hold about three to four milliliters of water within your body. So if you have less glycogen stores and you're consuming less carbohydrates, essentially you're just going to hold on to less water. Hence, any fluid that you do consume, you're more likely to pee it out. Uh, I'd also like to say that Kind of touching on what Jack said as well, when you're eating a lot of high volume foods, a lot of people as well, generally when they are dieting, they'll drink more, whether that's in the form of plain water, they might have more coffees or decaf coffees, more flavored tea. I know a lot of people, you know, drink like diet drinks and energy drinks. All of that fluid adds up and it's gotta go somewhere. And if your sodium and potassium is staying the same, then you're not necessarily going to retain that fluid, so you've gotta pee it out. And another little interesting fact is that when we're actually burning body fat, you guys might have not actually thought the way that body fat is actually excreted <laughs> from the body per se, but what they've actually found is that around 84% of your body fat, it turns into carbon dioxide and that's released from breathing and you breathe that out through the lungs. But the other 16%, it's actually excreted through the urine, which is pretty cool. So I guess when you're dieting, every time that you go pee, maybe you're losing a little bit of weight <laughs> through your pee. So that's something else to consider. But yeah, I just wanna let you know that it is totally normal. And I think that everyone can probably relate to this, that when you are dieting, you just pee like a horse. I remember when I was going through comp prep, like Jesus, every half an hour I had to go pee. And <laughs> I even had people asking me, they're like, you know, why do you go to the bathroom so much? <laughs> and I just had to explain all of these things. But yeah, don't be ashamed of it. Definitely don't pee your pants, just go to the bathroom. And I'd say one more thing that's actually, uh, would you say it's annoying? Jack, do you experience this as well? But when I'm dieting and I'm in the gym, I feel like I have to go pee like between every single exercise. Do you do that as well? Uh, definitely in depletion week I did. Yeah, it was quite because um, I was severely deprived of glycogen there. So Yeah, I feel, uh, God, I feel like I'm always like doing my exercises, then going to the bathroom, doing my exercises, going to the bathroom. I feel like I'm always going pee, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> don't worry, it's totally normal. Okay, so we're going to move on to this next question. This one says, wanting to compete in 2020 season B, what are some bad habits that should be removed? So I don't think we're going to touch on bad habits because essentially we wouldn't really classify habits as good and bad unless they really were detrimental to the process. And we don't really know the habits that the question asker currently has. Like, obviously, if you weren't going to the gym at all, if you were eating junk food for all of your meals, those would probably be not the best habits to have for a comp prep. But we're assuming that you're not at that stage. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, what we would say is just some habits that are, are healthy for a comp prep. 
or maybe not even healthy, but maybe good for the process and sticking to it. So obviously, uh, finding a coach that you like and you think you'll work well with and have forming a good relationship with them. And that'll probably be the number one factor if you don't have much experience with comp prep, because they'll basically be your guide and your way of getting to the stage, essentially. And I'd say it'd be really important to develop a good habit of communicating clearly and regularly with your coach and just making sure, you know, there's an honest line of communication and you guys are always on the same page. Yeah, definitely. And we can just touch on some basic training and nutrition ones as well. So for example, for training, just uh, making sure you're obviously being consistent with training, training hard as well, not take, not like not bothering with like carbs or arms at the end of the workouts. And yeah, I say that your discipline is always defined by whether or not you train abs and calves. Mm, Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. All your weak points that all the stuff you just don't enjoy, like those will come back to bite you at the end of the day. So, and on stage as well. Yeah, that's for sure. And yeah, with nutrition, like hitting, if you have macro targets, hitting between those one to two grams of your macro targets, um, getting the right distribution, choosing the right foods. Like if you're having post-workout, maybe, and you're if you're very hungry post-workout, then maybe ice cream and protein powder isn't the way to go. Maybe you should be choosing some higher volume foods. And, but yeah, we could go on and on about this, but essentially the biggest thing is just starting and having a foundation and finding someone you'll work well with. Yeah. And I think another huge thing to point out is that, you know, time management, you just really got to get into the swing of things and managing your time well, planning ahead so that if things do come up in life, you know, you're resilient, you can handle them and you can still fit in your training sessions. You can still plan ahead to plan your meals and track your nutrition if you go out and just getting into those daily habits and also forming good habits of, you know, being active during the day, getting enough sleep at night, drinking enough water. It really does come down to those fundamentals, but it's like, it's never too early to start. So really try to ingrain those habits as early as you can so that when you do start a comp prep, something like 25 weeks out, you don't have to change a hundred things at once and completely change your lifestyle around. Because in that case, it's really, uh, you're you're really probably going to struggle and it's going to be really, really hard at the beginning. So yeah, I'd say just get used to this lifestyle as early as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for example, if you're not already tracking your training, if you're not tracking your macros, if you're not weighing yourself daily, then those are three things that I would probably start straight away. And because realistically, a prep for season B next year will most likely start in April. So that's really not that long to get these habits ingrained and start working towards that goal. Yeah, because I think that the transition from an improvement season into a prep should be very, very smooth, guys. Honestly, the two things that should really only be changing is your caloric intake so that you're eating less so you can lose weight. And also, you're just going to increase the frequency of your posing practice. But other than that, you should already be pretty much doing the exact same stuff. I'd say other than, you know, if you at the end of a comp prep, you might have to do more cardio or do more steps for increased energy expenditure, but you get the deal. Yeah. So we'll move on to the next question, which is by Tyler. And he asks, while cutting or bulking, do you count vegetable carbs towards your overall carb intake? Yes. Uh, Yes. To both of them. I think it's a good idea. At the end of the day, it won't really take that much extra effort. 
And yeah, for example, if you're having frozen veg, there's macros on the back of the packets. It's really easy. If you're not having frozen veg, just use nuttab, N-U-T-T-A-B. For example, if you're having a carrot, nuttab, carrot, MyFitnessPal, and it will come up with the most accurate entry. And yeah, it's just not going to take that long, especially if you eat similar vegetables every day. So it's just a matter of copying and pasting them um, from one day to another. Yeah, and we just have to remember, guys, that, you know, even though fruits and vegetables, they have a higher nutrient value than something else like maybe white bread, they still have calories. You know, both of those foods still have calories and they still count. And even though they are more nutrient dense and per unit of volume, they're less energy dense, they still have energy. And if you still eat them, you know, in a copious amount and you do go over your calories, you can certainly still gain weight from eating too much quote unquote healthy food, you know, or fresh, fresh produce, especially if they're a very, you know, nutrient dense fruit or vegetable, like you're eating a hell of a lot of dates or you are eating a lot of sweet potato or something. So yeah, I say anything that you're eating, just track it. Heck, even during this comp prep, I've started freaking tracking my spices, like <laughs> my Italian herbs and my paprika, and little bit by little bit, they do add up, but I want to be as accurate as possible. But I'd say the importance of being as accurate as possible is certainly very crucial when you are in a comp prep, but when you're in an improvement season, you know, I'd say you can be a little bit more lenient with how much cinnamon you put on your oats. You know, that's not going to make or break you. Okay, so this next question is by Marie, who's one of my wonderful clients, and she's asked, what are your thoughts on gut health and how it affects a person's health and fitness goals? Yeah, this is a really great question and one where new research is always popping up and it's quite a complex topic as well. So the way I want to get into this one is essentially by describing the gut-brain axes. So there is, believe it or not, a link between your gut and your brain and the gut also has its own nervous system called the enteric nervous system and basically with this gut brain axis there is a link between the brain and the gut and the link from the brain to the gut is via the vagus nerve and essentially a so like a highly stressed state might influence the gut through the vagus nerve calling a state of dysbiosis which is basically when the gut microbiome is in an unfavorable state and this can also be achieved through diet as well if you just eat like crap um, compared to having a wholesome diet of different types of fiber then you'll also achieve a state of dysbiosis so essentially the brain puts signals down to the gut causing a state of dysbiosis which also sends signals back up to the brain reinforcing that state of stress releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines which is basically not a good time so it really is a cycle so the brain can influence the gut and the gut can influence the brain yeah i think that was a wonderful explanation and if you guys want to hear about you know more about the gut brain access i would highly recommend checking out our episode 18 where we interviewed dr gabrielle fundero that was excellent she is a gut health scientist and she's just amazing so highly recommend checking out episode 18 for that but you know jack what are your thoughts on how it can influence someone's health or their fitness goals well, for starters, your gut microbiome is incredibly important for your immune system. And if you are in a state of dysbiosis, then 
like we like I just mentioned before, you are highly stressed or you could be highly stressed, which might affect your motivation levels to train. We all know that being highly stressed does impact your health through high, very high cortisol levels for a prolonged period, which will therefore affect your body composition as well. So it really is all interlinked. And if you have less motivation, you might not want to train as much. You might not want to eat as healthily because you might not be as motivated to choose um, or make appropriate food choices. Yeah, I think that's wonderful that you touched on that. Like 90% of our immune cells, guys, are within the gut. So if you are highly stressed, you do have that dysbiosis, you are more susceptible to getting sick. So you could, you're more likely to get a cold, which just like Jack said, you know, it can translate into not being able to train as effectively. And also we have to think about how the gut can potentially influence mental health as well, because if you are very highly stressed and you just don't feel well, you know, it can potentially bring on a sense of anxiety. You can feel quite sad. You might feel a little bit depressed. And yeah, less motivation to train, less motivation to get outside in the sun or go and see your friends. So it's kind of like a ripple effect. So I, I'm, I'm just such a huge advocate, you know, for starting with a wholesome nutrient-rich diet so that you can really enrich that gut microbiome and also taking control of your life so that you can try to manage your stress, you know, and so that you feel happy in life and you don't always feel under the pump and, you know, just taking control and managing your time, getting enough sleep at night and also, if you can do that and then you can do regular exercise, exercise is a wonderful stress relief. So there's really a feedback loop system happening here. Mm, definitely. And it is a very, very complicated process. And I don't doubt that we'll keep discovering new and wonderful things about the gut. Yeah, no doubt. I think we've just scraped the surface on that little explanation there. Mm. So this next question is by Candice and she asks, what's the truth behind people saying you can't have too much acidic food? All right. So you guys probably would have heard this, right? That you can't have an acidic diet. I think the main thing it stems from is, you know, people believe that if you eat highly acidic foods, so let's say things like citrus fruit, so things like oranges, or if you have a lot of vinegar, balsamic vinegar or something, they believe that if you eat acidic food, it can affect your blood's pH levels. But what we know is that our body is very, very good at regulating body pH because our body's pH needs to be at 7.4 in order for us to survive. And if your body's pH deviates away from that 7.4, it will very quickly bring it back up to 7.4. Uh, or <laughs> or you die. Um, but you're not going to die from eating too many oranges or having too much vinegar. So yeah, I think that's the reason why people say don't eat too much acidic food. But the thing is, is that our, the hydrochloric acid within our stomach is has a pH of what, Jack, it's like two or something, mm, which is low. highly, highly acidic. So acidic is the lower you go, more basic is the higher you go. So yeah, our hydrochloric acid in our stomach around a pH of two, highly acidic, it's going, it's much more acidic than whatever your oranges or whatever your balsamic vinegar is. It like, I don't know, I'm spitballing a number here. Maybe pH. HCL, um, <laughs> hydrochloric acid burns you 
it burns your skin. That's yeah. how acidic it is. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that that stuff is actually in us, and mm. our stomach lining is strong enough to withhold it. That's one of the cool things about the body is that the stomach lining is constantly regenerating itself. All those cells. Well, it's the layer of mu- mucus. Yeah, yeah, it's um really cool. All that uh, hydro- what's it called? Carbon buffer. I uh, thought it was bicarbonate. Yeah, bicarbonate. That's right. Anyway, <laughs> acidic food. Guys, you can eat all the acidic food that you want. It's not going to change your body's pH levels. I would say, though, that try to not, you know, have too much acidic food just swishing around in your mouth. So this is where I'd suggest don't suck on raw lemons. Oh, for- the hell does that <laughs> You've never done that? I did that as a little kid, and my parents were like, Tiara, your enamel, your teeth. Uh, and your dentist will always say, never suck on a raw lemon. Uh, but yeah, and just if you needed one more reason not to take apple cider vinegar shots. But again, very highly acidic foods. They're not going to change your body's pH. But if you have them swishing around in your mouth, it can cause damage to the enamel on your teeth. And then your teeth might turn a little bit brown, which no one likes. So you don't have to avoid those foods. Just like don't gargle apple cider vinegar or suck on lemons. But yeah, there's no reason to avoid it. And I went to the dentist a few weeks ago and uh, he said, you know, if you are eating acidic food, you don't have to brush your teeth straight away. Wait about half an hour before you brush your teeth after eating something acidic. But yeah. Mm. So we have two similar questions from Michael here. The first one asks, do you need to consume protein with your pre-workout meal? And the second one is essentially uh, Michael trains early in the morning and he's wondering if he should be consuming something to eat before training or if training fasted is okay. So it's quite a short answer. If you're training fasted, then essentially you will not have a spike of MPS, which is muscle protein synthesis. So we'd always recommend at least having a source of protein prior to training. So you get that spike in MPS. And I guess it's really up to you whether you wanna go for a carbohydrate rich meal as well. Personally, I think if you're in a surplus or if you have the carbs to spare, then I would get a source of carbohydrates. Realistically, it's not really going to do anything for your glycogen stores because it will take a prolonged period to be stored as glycogen. However, I think it will be raise your blood glucose levels and make you feel better during the workout as opposed to training with just protein in you. Yeah, definitely. And I guess something else to consider is that if you are training at like, you know, the crack of dawn, 4 a.m. and you just wake up and you go and you really don't want to eat or drink anything, I'd probably recommend having a little bit of water. But I mean anything with caloric value. Think about your pre-workout meal, which would have been your dinner the night before. So if you're training fasted in the morning, I think that it would be pretty strategic to make sure that you have a good amount of carbohydrates at dinner time so that you can stock up your liver glycogen stores. You can hopefully top up your muscle glycogen stores, and then at least you have some energy in the tank compared to eating all of your carbohydrates early in the day and not having many at night and then training fast in the morning. I think that might be a little bit more of a strategic approach, but if you are training first thing in the morning, there are some pretty simple ways to just quickly get some food in. So, you know, you can have maybe 
two slices of bread with some honey on it, or you can have a protein shake, or you can even have a protein shake with a banana. You can even eat these things while you're driving to the a gym. Couple right? A couple of dates. A couple of dates. And maybe a coffee for a little bit of caffeine. Uh, <laughs> personal joke. Anyway, um, but yeah, I think there's a few little things. Jack, do you have anything else that you know you could try to just eat really quickly in the morning to spike blood glucose levels, spike MPS? I think protein shakes are so convenient. Mm. Even if you use like a dextrose supplement or any sort of dried fruit or fruit, that's pretty much it really. Like if you want like... Yeah, even some handful of lollies or something like that that's easily digestible. Yeah, for sure. And we have to think as well that if you are training fasted in the morning, you know, even though you're necess- you might be consuming a few more calories prior to your workout, that's not going to influence your ability to burn fat or, you know, anything like that, like achieve your body composition goals. If anything, it'll actually work in your favor because if you have more available fuel, you'll probably be able to train a little bit harder in terms of you might be able to complete more reps. You might be able to do an extra set. You might be able to lift more weight simply because you have more energy. And then in the long term, that's going to lead to greater body composition change compared to if you were training in a purely fasted state without that energy source. So I guess that's just something to keep in mind too. So this next question is by Eliza and she asks, how many days of weighing yourself should you decide to increase slash decrease cows to bulk? All right, to bulk, so gaining weight. I'd say first off, as a general rule of thumb, I go off weekly averages. So I take, you know, a morning fasted body weight every single morning for seven days, and then I take the weekly average of that, and then I would compare that week by week. But there are certainly circumstances where, you know, things might change a bit. Yeah, for example, it might be an initial calorie increase where you will gain a fair bit of water weight at the beginning, and you just got to let that subside and let it even out and see how much you've gained. So for example, if I put a someone on an extra like 100 carb, like it might be straight after a mini cut, and then they gain like a, a kilo maybe in the first week, then I and then I'm just going to see how much they gain after that. For example, they might only gain like um, 0.2 kilos after that the next week or even stay the same weight. So then I would probably let that even out a little bit um, across the next one or two weeks, and then I would continue start increasing again. Yeah, certainly. And you've also got to ask them a lot of questions, you know, because it doesn't always just come to the total amount of calories that you're eating. A lot of things can influence a morning weighing, guys. So for example, your food choices the day before. So how much sodium did you have the day before? How much water did you have the day before? Did you drink a lot of water the day before and was it really hot because sometimes when it's really hot it can even work in both ways you can sweat a lot or your body will actually retain more fluid to stay hydrated and to cool itself down also you can ask your clients questions about their bowel movements right did you go to the bathroom yesterday because we all know that can influence a morning weigh-in And also, what time did you eat your meals? Sometimes my clients will message me and be like, hey, I know this morning's weigh-in spiked, but you know, yesterday was a bit of a sporadic day of eating for me and I ate a huge dinner. I ate a thousand calories for dinner and I ate the majority of my food, you know, after 7 p.m. or something. So there's all these little things to take into account. And that's why I think it's really important to 
try to keep things as consistent as possible and really look at what's happening over time in terms of, you know, those weekly averages. But I know that Steve Hall from Revive Stronger put out this really good infographic, like, man, it must have been like a number of months ago or something, but he said pretty much when you change your calories, whether or not you're putting yourself into a deficit or you're putting yourself into a surplus, kind of just ignore that first week because things are likely to change quite drastically. And I know this certainly happened for Jack and I recently. One, when I started comp prep and when Jack went straight on to his mini cut, you know, you get that first initial whoosh. And in the first two days, I know that my weight dropped by 1.3 kilograms. And Jack, how much did yours drop by? Uh, by, yeah, about a kilo or so. Yeah, exactly. And we were both discussing, we're like, oh my God, are we in too much of a deficit? Are we losing weight too quick? But we both knew like, hey, wait it out for the week, you know, see how your weight balances out because it is just that initial whoosh and that initial large drop in just glycogen and some fluid. And Hell, as we know, you know, the weight did balance out and you're not going to keep losing, you know, half a kilogram every single day. If you are in that case, then you are in a very severe deficit. And I certainly would increase your calories sooner than waiting a whole week. Yeah. So moving on to the next question, which is by Nathan. He asks, how efficient can the body get at burning calories if performing the same activity for prep slash diet? For example, 150 calories on the treadmill um, at the start of prep and at the end of prep. Now, this is a really good question. And as we know, there's certainly metabolic adaptation. But we just have to remember that a smaller body, guys, is going to require less energy to run and less energy to perform the same daily functions as it would as a larger body. And You know, this just goes to show why in general, males can consume more calories than females simply because they're just larger specimen. They just, they got more body cells to rejuvenate, you know, and keep alive and all that jazz. But yeah, uh, I don't know if we can really put a specific number on it. Hmm. Yeah, I think we can just say for certain that your body will burn less calories. And that's the whole process of getting fitter. When you when you get fitter, essentially your legs are still going to be moving and stuff like that. That'll be burning calories and probably a similar amount. But the fact that your heart's getting more efficient at pumping blood throughout your body and you're just fitter, so your respiratory rate will be lower as well. That's going to be the major determinant of how much expenditure you have. Yeah, exactly. And if anything, you know, anyone who's trying to, you know, pursue athletic endeavors would love that because as you do get fitter, your cardiorespiratory fitness, it improves and you become more like an athlete. So it's actually a really good thing. And it has a purpose, obviously, because imagine someone out there who's trying to go for endurance runs or something like that. Their body is trying to do it as efficiently as possible so that it can maintain and sustain its fuel sources and run off them very, very efficiently. It's almost like a car, right? Imagine you're driving like a Jeep with a four liter engine that's just chewing through gas, or you're driving a little Toyota Corolla or something with like a 1.3 liter engine, and you can drive all day. So yeah, a Toyota Corolla might be a bit smaller, but it's a lot more fuel efficient. Mm. So we're going to finish this episode with two questions that I actually received about my back. So Corinne asks, Jack's recommendations for lower back rehab exercises. And I also got another question just about 
how I recovered from my back injury from, because I put up a post yesterday of two lifts that I'm pretty proud of um, from like going, starting with the bar in February this year to RDLs and squats. Um, yeah, feel free to check it out on my profile if you want. But essentially, it's been a bit of a journey and I'll touch on Corinne's question first. So, and bear in mind, I'm a dietitian. Um, I not, this is out of my scope in terms of physio and exercise physiology and that sort of stuff. So this is just my experience. So essentially the back is kind of at the center of everything in terms of it'll be affected by your upper and lower body. So for me, it was really strengthening my glute medius and my hip flexors as well. And I did notice a big difference mainly after I had recovered from the injury itself and also my abdominal control as well. Um, those three things for me were really important for having a much more awareness of my, basically my whole hip region. And of course, the, the area of course that you wanna strengthen as well is your actual lower back. And for me, what worked really well for me was actually doing, starting off really light back extensions and then progressively adding more load. And I found that that really helped with the endurance component of lower back loading exercises like deadlift, RDLs and squats as well. So basically the main thing I wanted to touch on in terms of my recovery is actually chronic pain. And I've, I've talked about this in previous episodes, but essentially the analogy I'll give and one that relates really well to my situation is, and I've actually talked about it on another episode, but you're walking through the bush, you, you feel a twig um, scratch your leg, um, but and you're like, oh, it's just a twig, I won't bother looking down because it's happened however many times before. So you keep walking, you finish the walk half an hour later, you look down and there's like a massive um, gash in your leg and you can like see the bone and whatever. Um, so then you obviously freak out, you go to hospital, all that sort of stuff. Next time you're walking um, in the bush, you again, you brush a twig and you completely overreact. You go crazy. You, you're clutching your leg, screaming in pain. But then when you look down at the leg, it's just a light scratch from a twig. And um, yeah, this really does relate to me because essentially I was in pain with an actual injury for about six months. And it took me taking six weeks off training without any activity to actually recover. But during that time, during that six months, I sort of um, got into like a really negative mind state with my back in terms of um, expecting the pain to happen and always basically orientating my whole day around pain. Like I remember in dietetics, I would have to kneel down. I wouldn't sit. Um, even stuff like bending down to lift up the toilet seat, I would try and avoid and all these other different things. And the expectation of having pain, even after the injury is healed, really sticks with you. And that's been something that I've been working on this year. Even though I'm completely healed, the pain has stuck around due to those thought processes before. And essentially chronic pain is just when pain uh, maintains for longer than six months. So you could have an injury and you could not. That's the whole point with chronic pain. You could have something like arthritis, which doesn't have a cure, which may last for longer than six months, of course, because it's a chronic condition. Or you might have something that's completely healed up, but it's still with you due to those psychological impacts. So it is quite, I'm still managing it now. I still do have pain, but 
definitely trying to restructure my thoughts in terms of not expecting pain, not letting pain dictate my day and not orientating my day around my pain really does help. And I think reaching out to professionals in in this area will really help. So if you want to get in contact with me, because the reality is that back pain is incredibly common and so is chronic pain as well, especially probably in this bodybuilding and, and powerlifting industry that we're in. So if you ever want to reach out to me and DM me, I can let you know who I've spoken with. And it's been one person in particular has been very helpful for me. So yeah. Gosh, I'm just so proud of you for sharing all of that. And I'm just so glad that you are, you're free from that now, you know, and you're not in that state of mind anymore. And look how far it's allowed you to excel. Like, ah, gosh, I'm just so happy you're not in that place anymore. Mm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent, but I definitely have more good days than bad now. Yeah. Thank gosh. All right, so guys, we're going to finish on our very last question for the day, and that is one thing that we learned this week. So, Jack, I'm going to let you go first. So, Tia and I have been watching this documentary on Netflix called One Strange Rock, and yeah, we've learned quite a few things. It's quite interesting because it's not really an area that we know much about, but one fact that I thought cool was that everyone... Uh, speaks about the Amazon as like the lungs of the earth um, because it produces so much oxygen. But apparently all of the animals in the Amazon actually use up the oxygen that comes from that location. So it doesn't actually provide any oxygen for the rest of the world in a sense. That being said, it is incredibly important for the whole ecosystem. I don't really know my terminology in this area, but... (laughs) Yeah, One Strange Rock. It's this amazing documentary Jack and I have started watching. Highly recommend you guys check it out. It's uh, narrated by Will Smith, and it's so damn cool. It's like a dream documentary for me because it's a space documentary combined with like a David Attenborough nature documentary. It's so freaking cool. And I guess one thing that I learned this week as well from that documentary is that there was actually a mass world extinction far before the dinosaurs ever lived because the dinosaurs went extinct about 65 million years ago. But actually, about 252 million years ago, there was also a mass world extinction, and it was called the Great Dying. And what actually happened is that all of the world's largest volcanoes erupted, and, you know, it created a bunch of gas in the atmosphere. Apparently, the oceans went acidic, and like 94 or 96% of life on Earth died, hence the great dying. So that's pretty amazing. I had no idea. Apparently there's actually been like five world mass extinctions and the dinosaurs dying was only one of them. So heck, the more you know, but glad we're here today. All right, so guys, that concludes the end of our 44th podcast episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, tell your family and friends about it. We would absolutely love if you guys could leave a review on whatever podcast channel you're listening on, and we will catch you next week. See you later.